Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. As always, I appreciate it. This is Steve. I'm your host. And we're going to talk about the political machine here in the United States of America as we continue our inexorable drive toward the November 2024 elections. Uh, in line with that, uh, the first segment I want to talk about uh, today is this notion of uh, America being a divided nation. Now, let me say off the top, uh, it is a uh, divided nation. However, uh, how it's discussed and presented in the mainstream media is that we are a essentially 50% Republican, 50% Democratic uh, nation. And that's not exactly true. When you look at the numbers of registered voters, which um, for this show I did some research on, uh, what you actually find is that a more accurate depiction of the divide here in this country is that we are uh, essentially a third, a third, and a third uh, divided between Democrats, Republicans, and those who are uh, considered independent, uh, non-aligned, or, or other, uh, according to the st statistics. Uh, in uh, percentage terms, 38% uh, of the registered voters, and this is as of data uh, that was collected up through September of 2022, which is the uh, last available year uh, for this type of data, uh, as I said, 38% of the registered voters are uh, identify as Democrat, 29% uh, identify as Republican, and 33% identify as independent or other. Uh, so, you know, the, the numbers, the raw numbers, and as I was researching this, uh, different sources have different numbers, which suggests that they are collecting by different means or uh, you know, skewing the numbers in some other way. But roughly, uh, the median counts show that uh, there are, uh, again, as of September 2022, 215,534,588 uh, registered voters uh, in the United States. Of those, 48,373 <coughs> thousand ninety five of them uh, report as Democrat thirty six million nine hundred ten thousand nine hundred eighty seven report as Republican and forty two million two hundred and sixty seven thousand one hundred and sixty uh, listed their affiliation as independent other or uh, you know uh, some other uh, collection so you know the the accurate statement <coughs> isn't that we're a 50-50 country. Uh, and the reality is we are, you know, as I said, a third, a third, and a third uh, between the two major parties, Democrats and Republicans. And actually, that, that's not accurate because independents uh, are actually more than the Republican uh, collective uh, by about 6 million voters. Um, so what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, the the idea and the goal of both Democrats and Republicans, uh, as it's always been, is to see who can carve off the most number of independent voters while retaining, you know, their their base uh, political party voters. And what we've seen in the last uh, few years, um, actually, probably the the, the years since. Uh, the emergence of Donald Trump is that that independent contingent uh, actually has been growing. Uh, I think it is growing from the standpoint of overall voters are uh, disenchanted with both Democrats and Republicans and are, are looking for other options. Now, keep in mind in this country, you know, we talk about, you know, Democrats and Republicans and now independents as if they are the only three players in the game. They're actually, when you break down the, the uh, independent or non-aligned uh, voters, there are uh, roughly a dozen um, 
independent parties out there. You know, you can rattle off, you know, a few names, the Green Party uh, and, and so forth uh, that make up these uh, so-called independent voters. Uh, now, what we are, are seeing is that more and more people, uh, again, as I said, are becoming disenfranchised, not disenfranchised, wrong word, disenchanted with Democrats and Republicans and, you know, are looking for uh, alternatives. And we're going to talk about a couple of those uh, in the, the second half of the show. But what I wanted to talk about with regard to Democrats and Republicans is I wanted to look at uh, what they are doing in order to communicate, reach out, and gather as many of these uh, uh, independent voters as well as you know, moderate or, or swing voters from either of the two parties and you know, kind of talk about you know, the, the good and the bad of what they're doing. And I'm going to start with Democrats. You know, usually in this show, I think you know, people have accused me of picking on the Republicans fairly uh, consistently. My answer to that is, well, they're an easy target. Um, you know, they, uh, they are creating the most ruckus. They are creating the most uh, chaos and confusion in the political system in this country uh, to date. So, yeah, they are the, 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 the best target of opportunity that's out there. But Democrats, you know, you don't get a free pass. Uh, one of the things, and more and more, uh, even in the mainstream media, we're starting to hear discussions about this uh, all, all over the place. And it's something that I've been talking about for you know, at least as long as this show has been on the air. Uh, and that is that the Democrats have a messaging problem. Uh, they are, you know, for lack of a better term, they're playing softball in a hardball game. Uh, if you listen to, assuming you can, you can hear more than just the, the, the top-level Democrats uh, in uh, the media sphere. Uh, and by that, I mean, essentially, you know, President Biden, um, Minority Leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, and, you know, a few other congressmen and senators who seem to gather more microphone time or, or camera time than a lot of the other members of the Democratic party, uh, at least at the federal level, and at least in the national media. Now, you know, things might be different where you are in terms of your local representation, but in general, uh, the, the premise remains uh, true. Um, Democrats have a tendency, in, in my opinion, to prevent, present a very uh, genteel message uh, designed not to offend anyone, uh, not to ruffle any feathers, uh, and, and clearly not to lose you know, anyone in their, their base, uh, their key constituencies. Um, Republicans, on the other hand, um, as, as the uh, party that is out of power in terms of the White House and the Senate, even though they do control uh, the House, uh, has a tendency to be a lot more confrontational um, a lot more argumentative and you know, generally uh, doing things that keep them in the, the eyes of the media. Uh, for example, you know, in, in the last uh, two weeks or so, uh, the media has been all over the fact of uh, what happened with uh, Congressperson uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ouster from the um, Republican Conservative Caucus uh, or, you know, whatever that, that party was. Uh, and, you know, that dominated news cycles for a few days. Uh, also, there's been a lot of uh, feedback and blowback from the conclusion of the Supreme Court uh, year, uh, their, their October 2023 session which ended at the, on the last day of June uh, with uh, several days of just bombshell decisions uh, that they brought out that impact you know, a, a broad uh, chunk of American people, uh, not only Democrats, but Republicans as well. And 
but get, getting back to the Democrats, um, if, if you as a party, and again, I'm, I'm speaking in broad terms, I'm speaking uh, from the local level all the way up to the federal level, because uh, in general, the same, the same argument can apply. If you are going to consistently keep making these logical, uh, uh, almost polite uh, statements about the status of the American uh, economy and, and voting rights and health care and all, all the current issues, the Republicans, uh, frankly, are going to continue to keep handing you your lunch, uh, especially at the state levels where you know, they right now control the majority of state governments. Uh, there's no arguing about that. I believe they're their number right now is that they are um, 28 out of 50 uh, state governments, uh, and and by that I mean, uh, you know, governor's mansion and you know upper and lower chambers of uh, the legislative branches in the state, and that's due in part to you know an an aggressive uh, take no prisoners message style that they have been consistently using now for you know 30 years in going after uh, what is wrong with the Democrats, uh, what the Democrats are doing to you know, the American economy and jobs and, and you name it. Uh, meanwhile, the Democrats are taking you know, an, an Oliver Twist kind of approach, please, uh, can I have more? Uh, when in fact, what they need to be doing is painting what the Republican uh, platform is, or in this case is not, uh, what they have accomplished. Uh, and you know, it, it, it cannot be argued that in the, the two years of the Biden presidency, uh, they have accomplished uh, a remarkable amount of uh, progress for the American people. Uh, unemployment is at historic lows. Uh, job creation month over month continues to set records and, and break previous records. Uh, the, the economy is continuing to grow at a, a slow but steady pace. Uh, the only negative thing that, that impacts uh, Democrats uh, is that inflation levels are still um, high, even though they have come down by you know, a roughly four points in the last two years. Uh, so, you know, the Democrats have a, a message of accomplishment that they can, in fact, stand proudly on and should be taking every opportunity they can to bring these, these issues and these, these accomplishments to the attention of the American people. Now, I'm not saying that they're not doing that. Um, President Biden has made several speeches over the last month talking about his infrastructure plan, talking about uh, the reduction in inflation levels and all of these elements. And, you know, it's only more recently that uh, they, they've taken out the, the big golf club out of the bag and really started uh, hitting Republicans uh, at some, some very key issues. And I'll, I'll give you one that sits at the top of the heap. Uh, when we look at the, the Biden administration's infrastructure improvement plans, uh, to a person, the Republican Party voted no on all of those initiatives in the last congressional session. Uh, and, you know, the, they were able to pass it uh, due in part to bipartisan support uh, from some Republicans with the Democrats. But what we're seeing now is that Republican after Republican, uh, state legislators as well as uh, Senate and House members are taking credit for the accomplishments of programs that they did not support and they did not vote for. That is a big issue and it's an issue that Democrats should be hanging around the Republicans neck like a 5,000 ton anchor uh, and constantly bring to the attention of the American people that, hey, we did this, the Republicans had nothing to do with it, but they are trying to tell you 
and, and take credit for something that they opposed that benefits you, the American people. Um, so, you know, and, and as I said, only recently uh, has President Biden's attack on uh, Representative Green's uh, taking credit for infrastructure improvements in her congressional district that she did not vote for, um, you know, more of that needs to come out of the, the uh, Democratic uh, talking machine and more Democratic members need to step up to the mic and the camera and make that known to their constituents. Uh, it, they should be publicly stating that. Now, for Republicans, uh, it, it is clear that you, know, you are, uh, as I just said, taking credit for uh, policies and programs that you wanted nothing to do with uh, when they were going through the, the U.S. House and Senate. But now that they've been signed into law and they are starting to uh, be enacted and be active and they are generating benefits for the American people, now all of a sudden you're stepping up to the front and going harumph, harumph, look at what I did for you. You haven't done a damn thing, as Stevie Wonder said. Um, you know, all you did was rabble rouse, vote no, obstruct, uh, and do anything you can to try and stop or block these programs solely, uh, well, maybe not solely, but primarily um, because they came from the Biden administration. Uh, you, you know, uh, typically uh, are ignoring uh, or, you know, sidestepping uh, questions revolving around uh, issues of ethics and you know, criminality that have been widely reported about the Republican Party over the last seven or eight years. Uh, won't name any names, Trump, but you know, that, that has been your, your game of choice. And within the, the realm of your base, uh, that seems to resonate. And you know, while you know, that, that may be well and good, for you know voting and for fundraising uh, and for you know returning to your elected seat year after year or term after term uh, as far as the american people go uh, it really is hurting our country uh, fundamentally when you look at the the overwhelming majority of americans that for instance were um, 75 or 80 percent in favor of retaining uh, some level of, you know, a woman's right to choose and, and abortion protections during the, the Roe v. Wade fight. And, you know, also were 75% in terms of uh, doing the economic and infrastructure programs uh, that were being discussed at the time. And yet, you know, you voted against uh, those infrastructure plans. You voted against uh, the economic development uh, ideas that were being put forward, and you voted in favor of you know eliminating woman's right to choose, uh, both at the legislative set level and at the judicial level. You you have what is uh, is becoming or has become. Uh, something that just feeds into this narrative that, you know, it is an us versus them zero sum game. Um, you know, I win or I'm taking my ball and bat home kind of uh, existence that we find ourselves here in this country. Now, you know, we talk about the things that you know, Republicans are, are doing and creating in this country in terms of chaos and turmoil. Uh, but we don't talk and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the role of the third element in that um, third third and third uh, division here in this country politically and that's independent voters now again as I said earlier um, we categorize parties that are not the Democrat Party or the Republican Party as quote independent uh, but in fact uh, there are about a dozen parties in this country uh, that have, in fact, placed candidates on ballots 
and have in fact garnered uh, some amount of votes from very small, uh, in, in some cases, to the Green Party, which has generated you know, more than a million votes uh, on more than one occasion. But, and, and that doesn't count the fact that there are still probably twice that number of registered parties that have never uh, you know, recorded any votes at the national level. But, you know, be that as it may, uh, we, we group all of those, uh, those parties and, and those candidates together as independent uh, simply because they are not part of the binary uh, two parties that dominate our political system. Now, if, if you've listened to this podcast uh, on more than one occasion, you've heard me talk about the fact that I am actually an advocate for a viable third party. Uh, to take its place uh, on that top tier of the national stage. Now, realizing uh, full well that you know, un until we get enough uh, voters to uh, move a party uh, into serious contention uh, with the Democrats and with the Republicans, or we get a system that allows for you know a uh, a, a third party uh, to be present at the table uh, in in a broad sense. Uh, we are always going to be stuck with uh, the zero sum game uh, D or R uh, political structure that we have. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't a role to play for you know non-aligned uh, Democrat or Republican. Uh, you know, political parties uh, to have an impact and an influence and, in fact, even drive some of our political discussion. Uh, as, as I've said on this show before, uh, I think the, the true role that independents need to play is to work their game from the bottom up. And by that, I mean to start at the local level, to start with local politics, build a strong base, uh, and then elevate and escalate uh, candidates up to the national stage from there. Uh, right now, what happens, and, and there's been some talk in the media about one of the candidates, uh, or one of the potential candidates for 2024, because I don't believe he has announced his intention to run, uh, is Cornell West, who is a uh, professor at Harvard and you know, political activist, social activist, uh, who is, is uh, widely rumored to be considering a run for the presidency in 2024. Now, what we've seen in the past with other third-party candidates that have come uh, into the national spotlight, and I'm thinking people like uh, Steve Forbes, Ross Perot, Michael Bloomberg, even going back to George Wallace, um, these candidates uh, served primarily as spoilers, uh, stealing or siphoning votes off of uh, one or the other uh, primary candidates, you know, Democrat or Republican, and leading to the victory for the, the so-called other side. Um, it, and that's why I say that we need to be looking at building these candidate constituencies up from the grassroots. Uh, we need to have strong uh, independent representation uh, in our state houses, in our state legislatures, uh, in our local uh, you know, elected officials, so that the, the strength is there, the foundation is there, that these candidates, as they come to more national prominence, uh, actually move and pull uh, a significant number of votes uh, in in the political system, but also and equally, if not more important, they gain a foothold in the the down ballot races. They become the U.S. congressmen. They become the U.S. senators, uh, and in that role, as we've talked about here on this show, they actually become the deal makers. You know, when we have, as we are currently with a uh, one-seat majority uh, in the Senate and a five-seat majority in the House, if we have uh, what I call a viable third party 
uh, in those two bodies, then you know real work has to has to get done. Uh, politics doesn't just become about attacking the other side or you know negative uh, negative approaches to uh, key pieces of legislation. Uh, the people get a method to be more fully represented uh, at the federal level and at the, the state level as well because neither of the two major parties have a clear majority uh, in, in their respective houses. Therefore, in order for anything to get done, uh, they have to deal with, they have to bargain with, and they have to bring uh, significant numbers of these independent representatives and senators on board in order to achieve their majority vote. Uh, this would be a, a windfall advantage, uh, not for the political people, but for the people, uh, because it would mean that uh, you know, instances like uh, when we look at the, the Dobbs decision uh, and the overturning of Roe versus Wade, 75% of the American public was in favor of keeping uh, some components, if not the majority, of uh, the uh, abortion rights intact uh, and, and making some, you know, some minor changes or some, some uh, approach changes to how that policy is implemented nationally. So the presence of a, uh, a, a viable third party would have made sure that that 75% of the American people had a loud and clear voice in the political process and perhaps could have resulted in not an outright ban, but you know, at, at worst a mitigation of some elements of the law. Same thing with you know, laws that we've seen that are impacting uh, voter rights and voter discrimination. If a, a loud enough contingent of the, the independent uh, elected officials uh, indicated that they were not going to support a given piece of legislation unless you know, there was a substantial representation of the wishes of the people in place, then you know, that's when things can, can truly change in our political system. That's when it becomes a system of cooperation and compromise rather than a system of you know, who's got the biggest mouth this week. Uh, so, you know, it, it could have a definitely important impact on how politics in this country works. Uh, so, you know, this is this is kind of the goal. Uh, the concern is that, as as we saw with, as I mentioned, some of the earlier third party candidates, uh, their net effect on the election process in this country is to steal, uh, I, I keep saying steal, to siphon off uh, votes from one party or the other, giving you know, their opponent party uh, a victory that they might not necessarily have truly earned. Uh, you know, and right now, you know, the worry is with candidates like Cornell West, uh, like, like others, uh, even the, the talk going around about you know, Donald Trump running as an independent if he is beaten in the primary uh, for for president, that would essentially you know cut uh, you know probably a half if not more of the Republican base away from the traditional Republican Party and guarantee a Democratic victory. So you know there is a lot to consider as we look at you know, the increasing presence and influence of these third parties in the American political system. So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about a couple of ideas that were put out into the media over the past week uh, and, you know, kind of discuss what their impact uh, could be if, in fact, uh, was to become reality. So we'll take our break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and we'll be right back after the break. Young John Lewis, you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 45 times. 
in your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And you were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up to speak out. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote you back and invited you to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, you have been admitted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was there that you got involved in the sit-ins. You would be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, and someone would come up and spit on you, or put a light cigarette down your back, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you. You got arrested the first time and you felt so free. You felt liberated. You felt like you had crossed over. Free at last! Free at last! Thanks, God Almighty! You probably will never believe it, but the boy from Troy, as Dr. King used to call you, will become the embodiment of nonviolence in America. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Two years after you speak at the march on Washington, you will see the face of death leading the march for voting across the Pettus Bridge in Selma. We're marching today from Selma to Montgomery. We're marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first prize citizenship. Troopers here advance toward the group. You would make it. You would live to see your mother and father cast their first votes. The change we need doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to Washington. You also live to see this segregated nation you live in. Still an African-American president and his family to the White House. And guess what? Guess what? Young John, by some divine providence, as it is to send a message down through the ages, that man will be nominated on the 45th anniversary of the March on Washington. And all of those signs that you saw as a little child that said, white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone. And the only places you will see those signs today will be in a book, in a museum, on a video. John, thank you for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters, and cousins. You were denied a library card. You were sad. But one day, 
You've been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card. And believe as Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph and others taught you that we're one people. And it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. That maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came here in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. John, you understood the words of Dr. King when he said we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we would perish as fools. Rest in peace, Representative John Lewis, and thank you, and God bless you. And welcome back, welcome back. Um, I always like to play uh, occasionally that clip from John Lewis uh, simply because it is really kind of a, a primer on what we as people need to do in order to effect real change in this, in this country. Uh, we have to be not afraid of getting into what he called, quote, good trouble, close quote. So I'm always appreciative of the words from the late, great uh, Congressman John Lewis. All right, getting back into our discussion for today. Uh, in the first segment, we talked about the fact that uh, while some say that you know America is a country divided 50-50, when it comes to the electorate, we are actually uh, more of a one-third, one-third, one-third uh, divided country with a third belonging to Democrats, a third belonging to Republicans, and a third belonging to a collective group uh, labeled as independent. Uh, this creates you know, interesting difficulties, let's call it that. Uh, so... There are a couple of articles that came out uh, this past week that kind of speak to uh, some new concepts uh, in the approach to getting a broader coalition of elected officials. And we're going to talk about two of them, in part because they uh, bring forward uh, a new twist on some ideas that have been bandied about for many, many years, uh, but also because the time uh, for uh, looking at these more seriously uh, seems to be upon us. And, you know, so we're, we're going to take a look at uh, two of these that came out uh, over the last week. Um, but in, in terms of, of setting up this segment, uh, need to understand a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, the, the electorate needs to understand and be willing to accept the fact that bringing a, a viable third party to political life uh, is a multi-year, multi-cycle process uh, that is going to involve some pain uh, that we're going to have to get through before we get to the, the promised land. Um, as I said at, at the top of the last segment and the top of this one, we are actually a country that is divided up into political groups that, com that comprise um, a third, a third, and a third, uh, roughly, of the electorate. A third are Democrats, a third are Independents, and a third are Republicans. Uh, that's just in the, the breakdown of registered voters. Uh, in the actual political party uh, process, there really are and, and have been only two parties, essentially, um, that you know, control the political structure in this country. They go back and forth, uh, exchanging control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, 
they go back and forth, exchanging control of state legislatures and governor's suites uh, in, in the states. Uh, but if, if, if you look at it, you can rest assured that it is either going to be a Democrat or it is going to be a Republican that is in charge of you know, some level of the government that in, in impacts your life. Um, what is uh, proposed here, and this first article comes from uh, Andrew Young, I'm sorry, Andrew Yang, uh, who, if you don't recall, uh, ran for president in the 2020 uh, primary season, uh, didn't, didn't make the cut, as it were, but one of the things that he did do was bring some very fresh new ideas on how our political system uh, could be structured and operate uh, going forward. And this article follows up on you know, what he was talking about back in 2020. Uh, and it, it's, from, um, it's from Newsweek, it's been cited in Business Insider and you know, multiple sources, uh, primarily, again, because uh, even though the ideas are not new, uh, the time, it seems, uh, has come where uh, Americans are ready to have a discussion on uh, making some fundamental changes into how our political system works. So, you know, the article talks about, you know, just how fed up Americans are with the current political system. Uh, he cites uh, President Biden's uh, low approval rating uh, at uh, roughly 40 percent. Uh, Congress is sitting at 20 percent. Even the Supreme Court, long seen as the branch with the best reputation, he quotes, is currently sitting uh, underwater at 40 percent approval versus 58 percent disapproval. And I think, you know, in one sense, he's being a little generous with those numbers, as I've seen numbers, particularly for the Supreme Court, that are even lower than that 40 percent. Um, you know, so. It, it, it isn't a surprise and it doesn't come as a surprise to see the the ratings that our political leaders are getting given the show that they have been putting on over the last you know 20 years um, you know as I said in the first segment uh, it, it is clear that uh, the leadership of our country uh, is in varying degrees of tone deafness in terms of listening to what the American people want and expect. Uh, there have been a lot of issues that have been decided that uh, went against, you know, overwhelming American voter support uh, from, you know, uh, voting rights uh, restrictions to uh, you know, school uh, content, you know, CRT and DEI. Uh, to you know, abortion and women's rights to choose and to have autonomy over their own bodies. Uh, all of these elements had overwhelming support uh, to, to continue, according to the American people, but the, the political system uh, voted against those wishes in, in every case. So in his opinion piece, uh, he cites... Uh, this reality has led Americans to grow hungry for new and better options. 75% of the country is effectively under single-party rule, and both Republicans and Democrats have given up on even trying to contest in vast areas of America. And I'm going to interject a point here uh, to say you know, that is part of the problem. Uh, and you know, both Democrats and Republicans are often, or not often, most of the time, not willing to go in and compete in districts where it appears that the other side has an overwhelming majority. Now, this is one element that needs to change. There should be no uncontested elections uh, in this country. Uh, if, the, if there is a Democrat uh, in control of you know, a, a legislature and you know, they have uh, so-called a, a blue state majority that should not stop uh, Republicans from going in and contesting that 
that system vigorously. Now, that I'm not saying that there aren't Republican candidates that run in those areas. It's just they run without getting any additional support from their their uh, state or regional or national uh, support structures. You know, Republican committee or Democratic committees uh, don't support candidates that you know they deem are are fighting an impossible battle. However, the the way our system should be working is that someone who is challenging in a you know a Democrat who's challenging in a red district or a Republican who's challenging in a blue district should get the support that allows them to make a full-throated argument as to why their position is a better position. Uh, if they are trying to fight that battle on their own, then all we are doing is maintaining status quo. So uh, getting back uh, into the article, uh, he goes on to say, nearly three out of five Americans believe a new political party is needed and younger generations are showing even less of a desire to continue to operate in our two-party system. Only 40% of Americans think that the two parties are doing an adequate job of representing them. Let that sink in for a second. They, you know, 60% of Americans think that their party is not doing an adequate job of, of representing them. Which raises the question, why have they been voted back into office? You know, we talk about this constantly on this show. If your elected official is not listening to you, is not doing what you and your neighbors and you know, the people in your district, uh, in your town, uh, or in your state are, are, uh, have sent them to office to do for you, then don't send them back. Uh, but one of the, one of the, the issues where uh, we need to do more work is in making that tough call to say, yeah, you know, he's popular or she's, you know, she's popular, but she's not effective or he's not representing our interests in, you know, in Congress or in the Senate uh, or even in the White House. Uh, so therefore, we're going to vote for another option. Um, you know, that if that became a solid practice in this country, one of the first things you would see happen is you would see the responsiveness level of our government go way up. If politicians understood that they are not guaranteed a reelection uh, simply because you know they're an incumbent, that it is something that they have to earn every time, uh, that's going to change how they think about what it is they do. And I think that is one of the things that uh, even outside of these these two articles, one of the things that uh, we as the American voters need to do is we need to start sucking it up and getting uh, people in who are going to do and listen to what we want and not the other way around. And as as Andrew Yang points out in his article, uh, a lot of this new thinking in terms of what our elected officials are or aren't doing is coming from the younger generations of voters, the Gen, uh, Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z voters. Uh, they have been making their presence felt over the last three or four election cycles uh, in greater and greater numbers. Uh, and part of it is that they hold a belief, as it, it cites in the article, that the two parties are increasingly catering to their bases and to the extremes. And Andrew Yang cites this as a, quote, feature of our current system, not a bug. So you know, there, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, and it goes not just at the federal level, but down to the state level. Most states have what are called closed party primaries to determine candidates for the general election. Well, what does that mean? That means that uh, you vote in either a Democratic primary or a Republican primary. If you are an independent voter in many states, not all, but many, you have to either choose to, to vote as a Democrat or vote as a Republican. You have no option to vote your true choice uh, as being an independent. Uh, another point um, 
that he brings up is, you know, how because neither side has an incentive to fix problems that they can instead use to bash the other side while fundraising to fuel the machine. Uh, and we see this constantly. Uh, you need look no further than the news that has come out, you know, after the the indictments of the former president to see that his first order of business uh, after walking out of the courtroom was to start fundraising. Uh, and, you know, when uh, Democrat Adam Schiff was called to the floor uh, for censure, the first thing he did coming out of the gate after leaving the floor was to start fundraising. Uh, it, it is a clear indication that, you know, money is not only the fuel that drives the machine, it is the oil that keeps it running smoothly. It is the road that it runs on. And that's another element that needs to change. Uh, ever since the Supreme Court handed down Citizens United decision, essentially saying that corporations are people and corporate money is speech, uh, we have seen just a ridiculous amount of money uh, pushing agendas across the country. One of the things that he says is uh, a way to address some of this is, you know, as I said, nonpartisan primaries, basically where everybody votes in the same primary regardless of their political affiliation. And there are some states that do this now, um, but also that we, we go to what is called a ranked choice voting system, which gives everyone a voice in selecting our candidates. So what ranked choice voting is, is that rather than voting for, you know, one candidate for Congress, either a Democrat or a Republican, you pick, you know, your top three or four candidates. If at the at when the votes are tallied, the number one listed candidate doesn't get a majority of the votes, then the number two candidate uh, is evaluated to see what their vote totals are. If they get the majority of votes, then um, then they are the ones who are elected. What does this do? It means that uh, the candidates have to appeal to the broadest possible uh, collection of constituents so that they, at, at a minimum, lock in that second place finish so that if the first place candidate doesn't achieve the majority, then they are selected uh, by by virtue of their second place finish. So it, uh, it, it is a way for more people to have impact in deciding who wins and who doesn't win in our election. And as I said earlier, some of these are not new. For example, uh, this ranked choice voting uh, led to better outcomes in Alaska. Uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski built a coalition of people across the political spectrum to retain her seat uh, against an election-denying opponent. Uh, another uh, case led uh, Democratic Representative Mary Peltola to defeat former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, uh, who, you know, as you may or may not recall, was uh, not only the former governor of Alaska, she was also uh, John McCain's vice presidential running mate uh, in his election against uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. So, you know, clearly uh, this ranked choice voting system can have some major league benefits. Um, but the, the key is, and, and the, the point that uh, Andrew goes into uh, is in the last paragraph, and I'll, I'll read that to you. It says, uh, on top of these reforms, Americans need more choices. By setting up a system where there are only two options, each party needs only convince voters that they are better than the other team to win an election. Coupled with our skewed partisan primary system, this creates a race to the bottom, one that we are all suffering the consequences of now as we head into a likely presidential rematch between two candidates that Americans don't want. Now, I, I, I don't think you could say it clearer than that. We clearly have a situation where uh, it, it is something that you know, we have got to fix or we're going to continue to have these uh, zero-sum game shenanigans go on year after year, cycle after cycle. So 
the second idea, and this was uh, from an article in The Atlantic, and it's an opinion piece by Russell Berman and came out on Thursday. Uh, and he starts off uh, by saying, for most Americans, voting for a member of Congress is one of their simplest civic duties. Every two years, they pick the candidate they like best, usually the same one they chose last time, and whoever gets the most votes will represent them and a few hundred thousand of their neighbors in the House of Representatives. In nearly every case, the winner is a Republican or a Democrat. Whichever party captures the most seats secures the governing majority. The article cites that, you know, this has been the process uh, defining congressional elections for, you know, most of the past century. Uh, but, you know, it has outlasted its effectiveness and could prove ruinous for American democracy if left in place. Uh, so the, the current winner-take-all system for driving U.S. politics toward uh, dangerous levels of polarization. Without radical change, they say, damage could be irreversible. So, you know, the, the idea here is that he cites uh, a gentleman named Lee Drutman, uh, who is a political scientist and a senior fellow at the Left-Leaning New America Foundation. Uh, he is the co-founder of a group called Fix Our House, a group that envisions a new configuration for the lower chamber of Congress in which districts would elect several representatives, not just one. Uh, most states would have fewer districts, but they would be larger. And unlike the current system, a district wouldn't simply be won by the party with the most votes. Instead, its multiple seats would be parceled out according to the percentage of the vote that each party gets. That means that previously niche parties would suddenly have a shot at winning seats. So, you know, unlike, you know, where we were talking about ranked choice voting, where the top, you know, three or four candidates are elected based on the number of uh, votes they get, here there would be, you know, multiple representatives uh, covering a larger district than current representatives are now covering. Uh, so you know, with with greater numbers of representatives, uh, you know, right now, I believe the current breakdown is something on the order of about one hundred and eighty thousand uh, constituents per representative in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, basically, you can figure that out if you take total U.S. population and divide it by four hundred thirty five. Um, so. You know, this kind of proportional representation uh, acknowledges that, you know, and, and according to its advocates, they acknowledge that it's a long shot, at least in the immediate future. Believe it or not, multi-member House districts actually uh, have a history in the U.S., but it's one that's not remembered uh, fondly, according to the article. It seems Congress outlawed their use at the federal level during the civil rights era after southern states exploited the rules to wait for it wait for it disenfranchise black voters uh, new proponents say they'd ensure the same thing doesn't happen again uh, i'm not betting the ranch on that uh, and they've won the support of some civil rights activists who believe that under the right legal parameters multi-member districts could significantly expand black representation Another challenge for the movement is that Israel, frequently cited example of a multi-party system that uses proportional representation, has recently experienced no less political instability than the U.S. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting idea on paper. Uh, unfortunately, I think given uh, the tenor and thinking of uh, political leadership in place at present, uh, it is not one that, in my opinion, uh, could be implemented without it being exploited once again. Uh, and, you know, that illustrates a point that, that deserves mentioning here. In both of these cases, uh, one of the things that isn't mentioned and one of the impacts and one of the impediments that would have to be overcome is the incumbents presently in office. Uh, if you think that uh, the, the House of Representatives is going to go forward 
with a, a proposal to have fewer districts per state but larger districts and have multi-member uh, representation or if you think that you know the the state uh, local and even federal elections are going to move en masse uh, into ranked choice voting given you know who is in place uh, presently in you know the house the senate the state houses and the governor's mansions uh, you have not been paying attention to American politics, uh, and you probably haven't been listening to this podcast uh, on a regular basis. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it, it is clear that you know some kind of change uh, is way overdue. Uh, some kind of change needs to be brought forward, whether it is proportional districts or ranked choice voting, uh, and you know, or or any other. Uh, approaches, uh, having, you know, more uh, independent candidates be able to stand freely and vote as independents rather than having to side with Republicans or with Democrats, and even voters being able to actually vote for an independent party candidate. And, and again, you know, that could be Green Party, Communist Party, Socialist Party, whatever party is out there that you want to belong to, uh, ha- being able to vote for the party of your choice uh, seems like it is a fundamental tenet of what a free democratic small d society uh, should be and you know we will we will see how that pursues one other interesting point that um, this concept would allow is it would take away the tendency to categorize political groups as monolithic for example, they cite in the article uh, a quote from Alexandria or, oh, yeah, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez where she told a reporter, uh, in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, but in America, we are. In a multi-party democracy, they wouldn't have to be. They could both be Democrats, but they could be, be parts of essentially different segments of that Democratic Party that more accurately reflects their own individualized representation of their constituents. Think about that for a second, so that you know your elected official uh, wouldn't just be your elected official because he or she is a Democrat. Uh, they would be your elected official because he or she and you is a member of the Green Party. Uh, and, you know, votes uh, whenever it's it's in their interest or your interest uh, to vote with the Democratic Party, but also be allowed to vote independently, to vote a, Dem- you know, a Green Party uh, position on the issues. So, you know, it, it is clear that if we learn anything from, you know, the the last uh eight years, uh, it's that there are some major league changes needed to uh, our political system, our electoral system, uh, and our, our voting system uh, to address some of these systemic problems that we have. Now, you know, we could spend a whole nother three or four shows talking about how that would apply to entities such as the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and what could be done about that. Uh, we could also spend an entire show talking about the, the benefits and detriments of term limits. Uh, you know, there are a whole range of changes that uh, could be debated and will be debated on this Fired Up podcast as we go forward uh, toward the November 2024 election at breakneck speed. So you know, stay tuned. Keep it locked right here. Uh, and you know, if you, you have thoughts on any of these uh, positions, send an email to the show. Our email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, I really, really would love to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to get your opinion. I'd love to get your, uh, your thoughts, either pro or con, for what we've discussed today or in any of our podcasts. Uh, you can go to, uh, you can search us out uh, on your search engine of choice. Uh, just search for uh, Fired Up Podcast 
or search for WJMS Media and you will find a link to uh, get to us either directly or through our WJMS uh, website. So with that being said, we're going to call this one uh, done. Uh, thank you all for listening. As always, I greatly appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And I look forward to coming back to you again and having another discussion on the political machinery here in the U.S. in seven days. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.